listeners to episode eight of our U.S. politics podcast. It's called A Chicken in Every Pot, and you can find it on Spotify and Apple and uh, possibly elsewhere. Um, I'm Coda Harrington. I work at University College Cork, and uh, I'm going to quickly hand over to my esteemed colleague to introduce himself before we turn to our even more esteemed guest. Hello, everyone, again. Uh, it's Alex Warren here from the Associate Professor in Politics in the University of Leicester, uh, and we're going to be talking about the debt ceiling today, amongst other things. Fodor, do you want to introduce our guests? Yes, I'd be delighted to. Thank you. We are so, so, so pleased to have Professor Stephen Pressman, who is part-time professor of economics uh, at the New School for Social Research in New York. He is Emeritus Professor of Economics and Finance at Monmouth University in West Long Branch, New Jersey. And he is Associate Editor of the Review of Political Economy, um, after serving as co-editor of the journal for over 25 years. I can't believe I can't believe I'm reading this. He's published nearly 200 articles. That's just that's just blowing my mind. And authored or edited uh, 18 books. Uh, lots, lots, lots more to add. I'm going to leave it there. Basically, the point being, Steve, I think you are as well placed as anybody could ever be to talk to us about this. You know, quite sort of complicated, um, but nonetheless fascinating and very relevant topic at the moment. So, welcome, Steve, and thank you very much for coming. Yes, thanks indeed. Um, I, I just, I mean, should preface it, I guess, on the day that uh, Donald Trump, former President Trump, is going to be indicted uh, in Miami, that this perhaps might be the hottest topic. But it was a big talk, topic a couple of weeks ago, and certainly the long-term consequences around the negotiations uh, and the possibility of defaulting on the debt are clearly uh, really significant. But maybe we could just start, though, Steve, by talking about the nature of the debt ceiling itself, as far as I understand it, Denmark's the only other country that has a mechanism like this, uh, where you have to sort of authorise the payment of debt. And the Danes don't seem to have the same struggles every time they get close to the debt ceiling that has become the case recently in the US. So can you just give us a little bit of background about, you know, what the debt ceiling is and, and maybe about why it's become such a political um, you know, pivot point in recent years. Okay, well, first, thank you, Cloda, for the gracious introduction, and thank you both, Cloda and Alex, for inviting me to participate. Um, let me just start with the simple basics on the debt ceiling and what it is, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit then about how and why the U.S. is different from every other country in the world besides Denmark. And even Denmark is really different from the United States because they have a debt ceiling, but their debt ceiling is so high that it's inconceivable that they're going to approach the debt ceiling within the next several decades. So it's really a unique American U.S. phenomenon. And, and the, the reasons are historical. But before I get to that, let me just talk a little bit about what this thing is. Um, probably the best or closest analogy I could make is with uh, your credit card. You have a limit on your credit card. And the limit on your credit card is about how much you can borrow effectively using your credit card. Because when you're using your credit card, you're borrowing money. And when the bill comes, you need to pay it back. Um, it's also analogous somewhat to how big a mortgage you can get on a home, you know, how much money you can borrow, what's the maximum, right? And so the debt ceiling is a limit on the maximum amount of money that the U.S. federal government can borrow. Um, and 
the one big difference, the one way this analogy is not really good, like the credit card or the mortgage limits, is the credit card limit, the mortgage limits, they're imposed from the outside on people. You don't get to determine what the limit is, right? It's, it's the bank is telling you we're only willing to lend you this amount of money because this is the maximum amount that we think that you can handle. The strange thing, the bizarre thing about the debt ceiling is it's a limit that the U.S. government has imposed on itself and said this is the maximum amount that we will borrow, even though. The need to borrow is already implicit in all of the tax and spending bills that Congress has passed. And so the past bills that have been approved by Congress determine how much the government needs to borrow. And then there's this bizarre separate thing which says you can only borrow up to a certain amount. And they're completely separate and distinct. And the reason for this has to do with history. Um, this all started during World War One, um, and during World War One, President Wilson wanted to be able to spend money to help the United States fight the war, but Congress didn't want to give the president a blank check, and that created a big problem. Um, and here's maybe the best way to think in concrete terms about what this problem is. If you've never read David McCulloch's great biography of John Adams, the second president of the United States, highly recommended. The biography starts off with John Adams going from his home, which is in Massachusetts, not too far from Boston, going to the first Continental Congress in Philadelphia. And hmm. this was the 18th century. Mm -hmm. And he went on horseback and it took him a week or more to get from his home down to Philadelphia to attend the Continental Congress. In the early 20th century in the United States, we weren't still all traveling via horseback. There were rails, mm -hmm. but the rail lines weren't really good or sophisticated in the United States, and they didn't service lots of rural areas, especially in the western part of the United States. And the United States grew a whole lot from the 18th century when John Adams had to make the trip from Boston to Philadelphia. And so it would take people in Congress weeks to get from their home and their district out on the West Coast to get to Washington, D.C. in order to come to pass a bill that would then enable President Wilson to spend another couple billion dollars on the war, a couple hundred million dollars on the war. And then, of course, they'd have to make the trip back home again another week or two. And then two weeks later, they may have had to come back again because the president needed to spend more money and wanted to spend more money on the war and they wanted to support it. And so the compromise was Congress gave the president the ability to spend more money, but they put a limit on it. And the original limit was $11.5 billion. President could spend more and more money without the approval of Congress, but there was a limit to how much he could spend and how much more could be borrowed. Thus, the debt ceiling was born. That's, and, that's, wow. and that's continued throughout history, 
even when it was really no longer necessary because even from remote places like Hawaii, it still takes maybe a day to get to Washington, D.C. to vote. And even that's not necessary because during the COVID pandemic, voting was done by Congress via the Internet. So you don't even need to travel to Washington, D.C., but this sort of ancient relic still persists in the United States and it causes a whole lot of damage, which we saw recently when the government almost defaulted because Republicans were reluctant to raise the debt ceiling and the bills had already been passed that would push us past that point. That's really interesting. I must admit, I, I do think the cards on the table, I think the debt ceiling is a dumb idea, but it's really interesting to get that, the accidents of history and the reasons why it comes into being. Um, when, do, do, before we get into the thinking about the, the recent you know, negotiations and how, the, how they were resolved, it's not always been, in terms of raising the debt ceiling, so you know, we need congressional authorization to, to raise the debt ceiling, it's not always been as contentious as it is now, and it's become contentious certainly in the 21st century, I guess. When when did the, the out party, so to speak, as into the non-presidential party, when when did they start trying to use the debt ceiling as a point of political leverage? Um, I think that the big one was 2011, yeah. when Obama was president, and he wanted, uh, and, and, and the Republicans forced on him through threatening to not raise the debt ceiling and threatening to have the U.S. default. Um, He got President Obama to agree to large cuts in government spending, which hurt the economy in order to make sure that the U.S. didn't default. Um, And so that win then like gave Republicans the idea that they could always hold the U.S. government hostage and by holding the U.S. government hostage, could always get what they wanted, which is cutbacks in government spending. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a dangerous game of chicken. And in 2011, um, I think it was S and P, but one of the three credit rating agencies actually downgraded the quality of federal government debt just because we came so close to the brink. Just, I mean, I mean, it's probably worth examining what what the brink is, so to speak. I mean, we've we, we've never run the counterfactual of, of actually not raising the debt ceiling yet. Uh, but we mentioned President Trump, former President Trump, earlier, and I think he was urging uh, Republicans to to let the default happen. What would I mean? So we don't exactly know, but just in terms of you know the idea that this would be a catastrophe. Claude, I think you were saying Janet Yellen that. Uh, Treasury Secretary was... Yeah, she said grave grave consequences for the US economy and for the global economy, like all, all, not, not quite equally, but, but you know, ca- catastrophic, I think was one, one of the words that she used. It's quite, quite intense language, really. Um, uh, it, it, it's something that's caused pretty much every economist to lose sleep and worry about, or at least every macroeconomist uh, to lose sleep about. But um, if, if we if we use 2011 as our guide to what might likely happen, um, we can make some relatively good educated guesses about what would have been the consequences had the U.S. government defaulted earlier this month. Um, 
the first thing that certainly would have happened would be that U.S. government debt would have been downgraded by all the credit rating agencies. And the, the impact of that would be that for the federal government to borrow money, it would be paying higher interest rates. And so that would just further worsen the debt picture in the United States because it's $32 trillion in debt. What that means in concrete terms is if the interest rate on government debt rises by one percentage point because of a default, $320 billion um, each year would go to pay interest on the federal debt just because of this default. And that's a good chunk of money. Um, but it wouldn't just be the federal government that would be paying higher interest rates. It would also be everybody else because other interest rates in the economy are usually pegged to some extent to the interest rate on federal government debt. And it's all related to what's the risk of federal government debt default compared to other groups. And other groups are always higher. If interest rates on federal government debt rises, interest rates then will rise for state and local governments. It will rise for companies. It will rise for consumers. And so this will all filter down to the economy. Higher interest rates will slow spending and slow economic growth and increase the unemployment rate. You mentioned so earlier. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, well, you mentioned earlier. Well, you know, we can talk more about the consequences. But you mentioned earlier you talked about it as a game of chicken. Um, now, in the sense of getting the wider public's understanding of what might the consequences might be, it's understandable why that might be limited. Do you, and I'm just asking you to speculate here and just tell me to, you know, you don't know, to shut up. But in the sense of the, the people who, who are playing chicken with it, in, in the sense of those members of Congress who voted against the deal, um, do you, uh, how, well, we're facing this question in a minute, but do you think they actually understand, you know, that what the consequences are? Do they understand it's a game of chicken that if, you know, if they, go over the, the edge that they really are. There's a cliff. It's not a, you know, they, they, it won't be a soft landing. I mean, I think deep down they probably do. And they've probably been told enough by the media, by uh, all sorts of economic advisors in the government, including some of their economic advisors that they have on their staff and their, their staff who has connections to other economists they know that the consequences would be severe. I think some of it in, on the Republican side was just grandstanding. It was, we wanna cut spending. Some of it was just to try to like force the government to do what they wanted to do, even though they didn't have very much power. Um, they didn't have control of the Senate. They didn't have control of the White House. And they very, very barely had control of the House of Representatives. But there is a, a, a strong right wing MAGA Republican that just wants to burn everything down. And the House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, had really little power over these people. And they actually came very close to destroying the economy. Um, and, and let me go further on that and then maybe come back to mm -hmm. the the how and why they came close to destroying the economy. But it, it, 
in addition to the higher interest rates, there are also the, the psychological effects of the default um, on consumers, um, on business firms, and this too will slow down growth. Um, there's also likely going to be a huge consequence on banks. If you remember back to March, there was a bank panic in the United States. Um, it made headline news when uh, Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, which was the second largest bank collapse in the United States. And there were a couple of other banks that also collapsed and a bunch of other that were on the fringe of going under. And part of the reason for that was they had bought a lot of the government debt and government prints up bonds and sells the bonds to borrow money. That's how it goes into debt. And these banks own the debt. And the problem is, this is just economic gobbledygook that I won't go into in, in, in any detail because I'm sure nobody's interested in it. But when interest rates rise, the price of government bonds goes down. And so with interest rates rising and rising, banks were holding on their books lots of government bonds that if they needed to sell them to get cash, they'd get very little money for it. On their books, they were all booked at the face value of the bond, but the bonds had declined a lot in value. And a lot of these banks, including Silicon Valley Bank, were effectively underwater. They owed more to the depositors than the value of the assets that they had because of the decline in bonds. People started pulling money out, a traditional bank run, and you've got big problems with banks. Yeah. And so and so it was sort of the the sort of contagion or the the sort of full effect goes to the whole economy, the banking system, as well as everything else. And there would also likely be international consequences as well, because U.S. government bonds are usually used as collateral in international relations and in international lending. So if a bank in England or Ireland wants to borrow money in U.S. dollars from a U.S. bank, if they're holding U.S. government bonds, that would be their collateral. And so the U.S. banks would lend the money to a, a bank in another country knowing that the loan was relatively safe because they could always get the U.S. government bonds back and that was safe. But if those bonds were no longer safe, the U.S. banks not lending to Ireland, it's not lending to England, it's not lending to banks in other countries, and it's, it then becomes a global phenomenon. Yeah. And so the, the consequences are serious. Uh, just, just in terms of some numbers, um, Moody's actually estimated that if there was a short term, just a couple of days default of U.S. government debt, the U.S. unemployment rate would rise to 5% from 3.5%, which is where it was when they made the estimate uh, about a month or so ago. And the U.S. Council of Economic Advisors estimated that if this lasted more than just a couple of days, the unemployment rate in the United States would rise to 8.5% and we'd lose 8 million jobs. So uh, the, the, ca the, the, the catastrophic consequences of a government default were severe. And now sort of getting back to Alex's earlier question about sort of how close were we to the brink. We were really close to the brink. Um, if you remember when Janet Yellen first talked about where we've got an impending problem, 
She said the government could run out of money by June 1. That was her original estimate. Um, Other economists at the time were estimating we'd be okay through the summer, but tax revenues weren't coming in as quickly as possible. And some of it had to do with problems in California where the IRS wound up saying that taxes, which were normally due in April, wouldn't be due until the fall. So the government had a shortfall of revenue. Janet Yellen raised the alarm. This could be all over on June 1. Then she changed her date from June 1 to June 5. Okay, that was important because if you remember, President Biden signed the bill raising the debt ceiling on June 3rd. We, 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 we were saved by a couple of days from a catastrophe. Wow. And so it was basically politics effectively brought us to the brink. But one slight mistake and or one slight move by the Republicans could have caused the U.S. to default. And there were there were a couple of points where Republicans could have actually stopped the process had they really wanted to. And this now gets to Alex's question, I think, about did they really want to do this? And I think the answer was no, they didn't because they had the opportunity to do it. And the, the two opportunities were one on the House Rules Committee, which by one vote agreed to have the bill go to the floor of the House for a vote by everybody. And then it was mainly Democrats supporting the bill that Mm. got this thing through. There were a couple Republicans, including one pretty right wing MAGA Republican who was going to vote no, which would have meant that the bill would have never gone to the House floor. At the last minute, they decided to vote yes and let this go to the House floor for a vote so that it could be passed by the House. Yeah, I mean, sure, I mean just to reiterate the point there, because there's a lot of reporting of the, the overall deal and the majority of that got in the House. Uh, but yeah, it could have, as, as I said to my students a lot, in terms of thinking about why things don't happen in Congress, it's mostly the committee stage or uh, things get blocked earlier than a full yeah, vote. Yeah, and I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I, I think, yeah, in, in this case, there was another factor. And the factor was, like, I think it was, recognized by everybody in Congress that this was serious and that they had to do something and they couldn't let the government default. That was the worst possible case. And we were approaching the deadline rapidly. And now you're putting, you know, somebody like, I'll I'll pick some really hated figures in Congress, like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert. All right. They could have, even on the House floor, put a motion in effect to remove Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House. That would have stopped the vote. And then they would have had to caucus again as Republicans to find another Speaker of the House. If that had gone on for a couple of days, the U.S. would have defaulted. But who wants to be the Republican to do that and then have the U.S. government default and then there'd be a crisis. It's everybody knows you're to blame. And so it was big on talk, but little on action. And 
there were enough Democrats willing to go along with this. And in fact, more Democrats than Republicans voted for this bill in both the House of Representatives and the Senate, mainly because Republicans, even though they really didn't want the government to default, they wanted to speak out about you know, how they were taking a firm stand on the debt, but really were not willing to do anything about it because they didn't want to get blamed. Yeah, it's like vote, vote no, but hope for yes, I think. Is exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Could I just ask a quick question about the, the kind of the, the, the timeline of things, Steve? Um, I'm, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, it, that the, the debt ceiling has been suspended, but not raised. Correct. On to 2025. So like uh, thinking about November 2024, as you know, as one does, uh, there's a kind of a clear run like this will not be a headache between now and November 2024. But it could quite easily raise its ugly head again for who knows what it'll be, pres president, whoever. Um, yeah. So the can has been kicked down the road. Is, yeah. is that to kind of nobody's satisfaction or or everyone's relative satisfaction like i'm wondering are there kind of any winners and losers here or, or is it too kind of a complex an issue to say you know somebody kind of um won or lost that's a that's that's a very good question um you're right that they kicked it down the road um and i would disagree that they um kicked it down the road enough Right. Um, the, the dates on this are absolutely horrible for all the reasons that you just mentioned, Cloda. And in fact, it's worse even than you said. Because remember, there is an election in November of next year. Um, but we won't maybe know the results of the election until middle of December. Because uh, House races and Senate races could still be contested. <laughs> Presidential races could still be contested as in yeah. 2000. Yeah, so yeah. in mid-December and maybe when we know who's in control of Congress starting in January, but in November and December of next year, Biden, the Democrats will still have the presidency. Democrats will still control the Senate only by a vote or two. Mm. Republicans will still control the House of Representatives only by a small handful of votes. Those are the people that are going to have to decide to raise the debt ceiling because it ends on January 2nd of 2025 when the new Congress gets sworn in. Yeah. And at that point, whatever the current whatever the current debt of the United States is, is the new debt ceiling, which means the government then can't borrow any more money. And so it's it's back to the government is trying to survive only on the cash that it has. And who knows how much cash they're going to be able to accumulate. Actually, I did read the agreement carefully. There is a line in the agreement which prohibits the Treasury Secretary from accumulating a large cash reserve by, Jan by January 2nd, 2025. I said, yeah, I didn't know about that clause. That seems and, and, and like when I read that, I said, we're, we're in for a potential great deal of trouble 
And, and it's not just November and the election. It's before the election when some people are going to worry we're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's funny. I think, do you think the Democrats missed the trick in the, the lame duck in December 2022? Should they have? I mean, you, whether you'd have got it through the Senate, I guess, is. Uh, and even the House, given the small Democratic majority. But should they have raised the debt ceiling at that point? Would that have. And, and you know, significantly raised it? Was that a possibility for them? Um, typically in cases like this in the United States, it, it, it doesn't get raised by a dollar figure because if it's raised by a dollar figure, you never know when you're going to encounter a problem. And so they raise it to a specific date because they're hoping that um, that'll get them out of the political problems that would arise next year during election time when they need a going campaign for re-election at yeah. the same time that there's the, the, the deadline of another debt ceiling facing them. So they postponed it until after the election when the new Congress came in. The problem was they didn't postpone it long enough. Had they postponed it until April or May to give the new Congress an opportunity to do something, that would have been better. But that would have meant like nobody knew who would be in control then. Yeah. And so I guess they weren't willing to do that or nobody thought far enough in advance to realize we're going to be in trouble early 2025. Uh, so just in terms of just thinking about the deal itself now, I mean, You've talked about the limitations of, in terms of the timing and what it might mean going forward. But just in terms of what was actually agreed in terms of spending in particular, mm -hmm. how big a deal was it? Because uh, in, in some ways, I think there's been quite a bit of commentary which sort of sees it as, you know, not that big a deal. And, and it's certainly from the Biden administration. And if anything, a win for the Biden administration in terms of it didn't really have to concede too much ground, which again, which would play into what you were saying earlier about Republicans didn't really want to, 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 to actually uh, match their rhetoric with action in terms of, of breaching the, the debt ceiling. Is that, but do you think that's a fair conventional wisdom or do you think that the deal is that was struck was more meaningful than uh, more significant than some of that commentary that it wasn't in itself. It was a big deal in terms of stopping the default, yeah. but it wasn't a big deal in terms of, of of what it actually accomplished to the budget. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that's I think that the conventional wisdom on this is is correct. It, it really was a big win for the Democrats and a big win for for President Biden. Um, and you're also right, Alex, the, the big winner was the United States because the economy didn't collapse. Um, and um, the, the, the deal was good in the sense that both sides were able to claim victory. Um, and and that's, a, that's a huge deal, uh, a, a big deal when both sides claim victory. Otherwise, you don't have a deal. Um, but the actual reduction in spending um, over the next two years, which would have probably had it take place anyway, because the budget for 2024 and 2025 now needs to be ironed out between the Democrats and the Republicans, and the Democrats are no longer in control, which means Republicans control the House. They're going to be able to get some things that they want 
and what they're going to want is cuts in government spending. And so you've got to give them some cuts in government spending, either now when you're doing the negotiations on the debt ceiling or later when you're negotiating about what the actual budget is going to be for 2024 and 2025. Um, the Congressional Budget Office estimated that the decline would be about $150 billion each year um, based on the agreement. Um, but there are enough sort of little loopholes and side agreements that it would probably come to $100 billion or less per year um, over, uh, you know, 2024 and 2025. And remember, 2025 can be changed really quickly if either party controls both the presidency and both houses of Congress starting in 2025. So you really have a, a one-year deal for $100 billion or less, and even some of that is not really a gain. Um, one of the things that Republicans pushed for really hard was to eliminate money that the Democrats allocated to the Internal Revenue Service to crack down on tax cheats. And I think they allocated about $80 billion. The Republicans wanted it all removed. Um, Biden agreed to remove $20 billion of the $80 billion. But the other $60 billion can still be used in 2024 and 2025 to crack down on tax cheats. So yes. if a Democrat, so, so that's really not even a, a $20 billion decline in spending in the next year or two. It's whether that money is there or not will depend on what happens in 2024 in the congressional and presidential election. So in terms of what the outcome was, I think it was a huge win for the Democrats. And you could see this in terms of both the grumbling by politicians on both sides of the aisle. The Republicans came out and were vociferously against it. They hated it, um, even though some of them voted for it. Um, the Democrats were a little bit upset. <laughs> they weren't horribly upset. They complained a little. We had to give up some things. That's horrible. Um, and you can see it also in the votes. More Democrats than Republicans voted for this compromise agreement. So it's pretty clear, you know, who won in terms of the politics and who won in terms of the economics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think some on the left of the Democratic Party did vote against, but again, I think that's probably performative rather than... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bernie, Bernie Sanders voted against it, and it was like some of the Republicans who voted against it because they didn't like the fact that government spending didn't go down by enough. Bernie Sanders voted against it because he didn't like the fact that government spending went down at all. But I would bet you that if his vote was needed to pass this in the Senate and his was the deciding vote, he would have voted in favor of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Steve, I was just trying to think of like, you know, the idea of them both kind of standing addressing different audiences kind of claiming victory with all the kind of caveats that come with that but I was trying to work out is there any common ground at all where they could have found some kind of unity on and the one thing I wondered about was kind of um, uh, veteran spending I thought is that like an area where you can get both sides of the aisle a little bit on board. I couldn't really think of anything else because all the other stuff is so laden with contention. But yeah. is that because I know one of Biden's requirements was um, full funding for medical care of military veterans and yeah. um, to increase. And I thought it would 
be odd for Republicans to push back against that? Would that be a reasonable reflection, do you think? Uh, somewhat reasonable. Um, and if, if you think about um, what can't be touched, yeah. um, the interest on the debt can't be touched because then the government defaults. Um, military spending is pretty much untouchable. Um, and even military spending, I think, was increased uh, in, in 2024 by 1%. It wasn't, it wasn't completely frozen. Um, and then you've got um, the, we'll call it the, the, the social insurance benefits of the United States. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, veterans benefits. Um, Republicans initially wanted to cut those. Um, the person that changed that was actually the person who's uh, being arraigned today in Miami, <laughs> former President Donald Trump. And he came out and said, no, don't touch that. No, he doesn't support that. And once he did that, all of the other Republicans fell in line on that. What that meant is when you added together the social insurance, the interest on the debt, and the military, that's 75% of the federal budget. Yeah, I mean, just, just and so And so to balance, to balance the federal budget would require cutting all other spending in half. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, just to reiterate that point, in terms of the, the evolution of the Republican Party over really just the last 10 years, um, in terms of if you think about the party that Paul yeah. Ryan's um, Republican idea of conservative small government Republicanism and, and, and Trump in 2016 when he comes and, and you know politically astute you could say to say that you know we're not going to touch social security which is the US public pension I mean it's other things as well but it's, it's, it's uh, most explicitly the US public pension Medicare which is the healthcare program for seniors and Medicaid which is a another public healthcare program covers different categories of people. So a lot of that actually goes to seniors as well uh, in terms of Medicaid spending. Um, but if you take those off, the, you know, so the, the, the Paul Ryan Republican Party would have ha happily, but would want to see those programs downsized or partially privatized, etc. So a degree of, you may disagree with that, but there's an intellectual coherence, I think, to that philosophy. Uh, Trump comes along in 2016, reads the politics of the room better, perhaps, and says, well, you know, because those are popular programs that people don't want cutting, says we're not going to cut those. But then when you're actually saying, well, we want big cuts to the government budget, but you're taking off, as you say, 75% of spending, then you're really going to have to squeeze the other programs uh, in, in ways which is potentially really undermining their, the logic of those programs, things like food stamps and other program, means-tested programs. So, yeah, I mean, it's, there's, there's, and it, as I say, that's an, just seems to me at least an intellectually incoherent position to take. You, you just, small government conservatism makes sense, big government liberalism makes sense, sort of, uh, but the, the in-between is it's, it's less coherent, I think it's... Uh, uh, and, and, and I, I would I would add to that, um, in addition to all of these social programs like food stamps, if you're cutting all of the other government spending, you decimate the court system and everybody in Congress would have to take a 50 percent pay cut. Yeah, that wouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that wouldn't be so popular. Um, just. 
I mean, just on the, the broader theme of, of you mentioned the 2011 budget deal, uh, or the you know the there's and and the, you thought the damage in some ways it was caused by arguments about austerity and then similar issues in the UK actually uh, in the early the the, the Cameron coalition mm-hmm. got with lots of austerity. Just there's been a, again I, in terms of. Government, so this is a broader argument about government spending, just moving a, a little bit away from the specifics of the debt ceiling deal. But some journalists who said, Matthew Glazias, who, with his particularly influential mm-hmm. stack, um, and he, you know, who opposed the idea of austerity in 2011, but there's a little bit of conventional wisdom that now might be the time for us, a little bit of austerity. Now, I'm, I think they would be looking at cutting different, they wouldn't be looking at cutting the, the, the social welfare programs that, Republicans are cutting. Do you think there's a logic to that argument in a time of inflation in particular that, that maybe taking some money out of the economy is a good idea? Um, I, I don't like the term austerity. Yeah. And the reason that I don't like the term austerity is it usually refers to cuts in government spending. Um, and while we might need some like cuts in demand, Cuts in government spending may not be the best way to do this. Um, and I, I sort of started with a story about um, John Adams traveling from Massachusetts down to Philadelphia. Let me do another story um, as we're approaching the end of this uh, podcast. Um, and I'm not going to go all the way back to the 18th century. I'm going to go back to uh, the beginning of the current century. Um, when Bill Clinton left office uh, in January of 2001. Um, At that point, believe it or not, the U.S. was running a budget surplus. And it was a big budget surplus. The budget surplus was $236 billion in 2000. Okay? Economists were estimating that given the current tax and spending policies on the books, Um, the U.S. government would eradicate all its debt within a decade or so. Everybody was cheering. And then something changed with the U.S. budget. What changed were two tax cuts, one by President Bush in 2001 and one by President Trump in 2017. And what that did was it reduced government revenues from about 20% of GDP to 17% of GDP, 3% of GDP. 3% of our current GDP comes out to $750 billion this year. That's half of the current budget deficit, right? And so Really, what you've got now is Republicans passed two huge tax cuts, which went primarily to the very rich and large corporations. The poor don't pay very much of anything in taxes. And the middle class got crumbs in the two big tax cut bills. So the Republicans pushed through these two massive tax cuts and their response to the resulting deficits have been, let's cut government spending. We need austerity. Yeah. That's why I don't like austerity. It's if you have a historical perspective on what's went on, it's clear that the problem is huge tax cuts to the rich and the way to 
get the government budget back under control and have it be close to balanced is we need to increase taxes on the rich, which would also help with the inequality problem in the United States, as well as with the budget problem of the United States. Yeah, certainly the evidence from the 90s is the best way to reduce the deficit and debt is to increase revenues uh, through growth as well. Economic yeah, growth. through economic, yeah. economic growth on the one hand, and you need to raise the taxes a little bit on the on the, the richest people who can afford it. And an extra one or two percent of taxes is not going to affect incentives for them at all. And I don't think anybody who's really rich would go around claiming that because their taxes have been raised from 39% to 41 or 42%, they're not going to work hard anymore. Yeah, but, it, but yeah, I mean, tax cutting does seem to be the one for the, the whole Republican Party. And, 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 that, yeah, and, and, and that's part of the reason why the <laughs> debt negotiations have been so difficult. And that's just, it seems, a, a bridge that, like the Democrats and the Republicans can cross. They can't agree. The Republicans won't allow any tax increase at all. And the Democrats don't want to allow for any cuts in government spending. Um, and incidentally, um, after the ink was dry on the debt ceiling bill, the next bill that the Republicans introduced in the House was yet another bill to cut taxes. Yeah, we mentioned intellectual incoherence before, but um... <laughs> it's like two parallel visions for the country completely, isn't it? Both of which are fascinating, depending on you know your your point of view. But one wonders how you know ever the twain yeah. should meet. Yeah, and and they probably won't meet, and and that's why the twenty twenty four election is so important. Um, if there is a blue wave and Democrats actually manage to control the White House and both houses of Congress, then they might have the ability to think about doing something simple and easy like let's raise taxes on the rich, let's get rid of the deficit problem and the debt problem, um, and and get rid of the debt ceiling. Yeah, well, <laughs> we'll have to have you back, Steve, when the time comes so you can update us accordingly. We're just reaching the end of our uh, 45 minute session. That was so uh, densely informative. I know I'm going to have to go and listen to this at least twice now myself so it can all land. But thank you so, so much, Steve. If I could just ask you one final. Thank you um, for having me. But go go ask your last question. Yeah, just just the, the the one that we ask all of our guests because everyone's always got fantastic um, recommendations. In relation to our topic today, or not even necessarily directly tied, but any reading, viewing, podcast type recommendations for people to to, to consider for us to consider, we'd be delighted to hear. Um, well, let me let me plug my my mentor and my dissertation advisor, Robert Heilbronner. Um, who's best known for his classic work in the history of economic thought, The Worldly Philosophers. Um, in the 1980s, he wrote a book called The Debt and the Deficit, which talks about the topics of why we have government debt. Uh, is it important? When is it important? Why or why not? It's a fairly thin book. It's maybe 120 pages or so. And 
if you've read any of the worldly philosophers, Robert Hobrunner is the extremely atypical economist who knows how to write and write clearly and write in a way that average people can understand. And it's highly recommended and clearly relevant to issues surrounding government debt. Fantastic. I will be sharing that recommendation with my students. Thank you. Good. <laughs> thank, you very much. thank you again for, for having me. This has been fun for me, um, and I'm glad it was uh, dense and informative for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much, Professor Stephen Pressman. We're delighted to have you, and hopefully you'll come back in due course and explain the next uh, debt ceiling development, because no doubt there will be one. So thank you so much. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, greetings everybody and welcome to our Chicken in Every Pot podcast. Uh, I am Cloda Harrington. I work at University College Cork. I'll hand you to my colleague for his introduction. Hello everyone, it's uh, Alex Alex Warden here from the University of Leicester uh, and today we're delighted to have you and Morgan. I'll let Cloda say a few more words. Sure, yeah, I couldn't be happier to introduce today's uh, guest, who is Emeritus Professor of US Studies at the Institute of the Americas at UCL. Many of you listening will know Ewan very well anyway, I, I'm sure. Um, I'm not going to spend time uh, going through his, his, his vast, uh, truly vast uh, back catalogue of, of achievements, uh, both scholarly and in the media, um, etc. But I will flag up to particularly relevant um, publications that are sort of uh, acting as the basis for, for our conversation today. Um, one is uh, his work on Reagan, American Icon, uh, uh, published by Ivy Taurus uh, some time back, and more recently from 2022, his tome on FDR, Transforming the Presidency, which was published by Bloomsbury, and I recently read, which is just fantastic. Um, so thank you so much, Ewan, for, for joining us. We're delighted to have you here. I'm not feeling the pressure at all as my uh, former PhD supervisor. I know you'll be um, completely non-judgmental at our, our questions, approach, and level of knowledge. Um, so thanks for being with us. And I'm just going to start with, um, I guess, maybe an opener, something for to kind of get a, a sense of your thoughts of, of where things are today, particularly in relation to the Republican Party, which we've been kind of thinking and talking a lot about recently. So what do you think that Ronald Reagan would make of today's Republican Party in its current form? Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, my uh, feeling is that Reagan would be very saddened with the uh, state of uh, today's uh, GOP. Uh, uh, even though Reagan uh, was highly criticised by uh, the left, Liberal Democrats in particular, in his heart of hearts, he was a consensus politician. And he saw himself as uh, the president of all Americans, even those who didn't vote for him. And uh, by and large, uh, Reagan uh, did not engage in vituperative uh, uh, attacks, uh, political or personal, on his uh, op uh, on his opponents. Uh, and he maintained, as far as possible, cordial relations with leading Democrats like uh, House Speaker Tip O'Neill. Sure, there was conflict. But by and large, uh, the Reagan the, the, the Reagan presidency uh, w didn't seek to polarize and divide in the way that uh, uh, the Trump presidency did. You just to elaborate on that. I mean, there's, there's different things there. You know, obviously, issue on polarization, and I guess 
Conservatives or Republicans in today's world might reply that Democrats have moved, you know, the polarisation's a two-way street, it's not simply the Republican Party. Um, but also in policy terms, how do you think Reagan, is, is it still the party of Reagan in policy terms, do you think, or has there been a, is, is the party of Trump significant? I mean, there are some areas where I think there is real difference on immigration and on trade, I think, would be two areas where you'd say that it's not the party of the 1980s anymore. Um, but I guess more broadly, the first part of that question is, you know, to what is, is this an area of where you think the Republican Party or the polarization is something we should blame, if that's the right word, mostly on Republicans, or is it blame equally apportioned between the two parties? And second, just going back to Republicans and policy, what, what other areas would you say that the party of Trump is not the party of Reagan, if that makes sense? Well, I thought to answer that by talking about uh, what uh, some scholars have called the great sorting, okay? When uh, uh, Ronald Reagan was president, uh, uh, the South was just beginning to complete its transition into the Republican Party, uh, although uh, it was by no means complete because the South did not become Republican in congressional terms until the 1994 midterms. They had two parties in the 1980s, uh, which had uh, conservative wings, and uh, in the case of the Republicans, a moderate wing, in the case of the Democrats, a liberal wing. So, uh, you, you know, there was a, a sort of balancing there. Uh, as the South became overwhelmingly Republican, uh, the Democrats lost their conservative wing. But, uh, they had to appease to uh, in 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 policy terms and couldn't move too far left uh, while they still had this conservative wing. But uh, with the ditching of the conservative wing, of course, the Democrats became overwhelmingly a liberal party, and they also uh, uh, captured a lot of Republican constituencies uh, in what might be called moderate. Uh, constituencies uh, held previously by moderate Republicans. So you had these two parties becoming what uh, 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 people had always spoken of as an ideal, uh, disciplined, ideological, cohesive parties. And of course, uh, uh, that is fine in theory, but if you have very, very tight com competition between such parties, they're going to turn to base mobilization uh, as uh, a necessary foundation for victory, uh, the party that can turn out uh, the uh, largest part of its base tends to win, and you mobilize the base through the politics of polarization. The Republicans, I think, have uh, practiced this far more than the Democrats have. And of course, the Republicans have acquired uh, this uh, southern wing to its party that it never had before, a southern wing which was uh, a drag on democratic liberalism during the period of liberal ascendancy. And uh, that southern wing, I think, is the Trumpian wing of the party now, uh, uh, emphasis on uh, cultural issues, uh, emphasis on uh, anti-wokeness, uh, and so on. Uh, which And uh, it is also the party, of course, of the South, economically protectionism rather than free trade 
and uh, government help for industries, uh, uh, the agriculture, of course. So it's not a free market uh, um, uh, element in the Republican Party. And I think that is different now to the Sunbelt version of the Republican Party, which Reagan championed, uh, optimistic, uh, free trade, free markets. The one area where I think they are wholeheartedly locked together, but for different reasons, is that both are still the party of, ta of low taxes. But if you peel away beyond that, uh, there are significant differences. I, I think uh, uh, low taxes, anti-regulation, and uh, by and large, uh, a, a more restrained uh, interpretation of uh, constitutional rights. But uh, the uh, Trump Republican Party has gone much further uh, than the Reagan Republican Party ever dared. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> sorry, I completely agree with that. I mean, one word which you mentioned midway from policy, we talk about the optimism of the Reagan era, um, mm. and that seems to that seems a long time ago in terms of uh, contemporary Republican politics. And, 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 and again, the idea of Reagan as a president of the whole nation, uh, even including those. And, and I don't think we should rewrite the 1980s. There was a lot of antagonism towards the Reagan administration. For, for oh, yeah. Um, uh, but, and, and, you know, we, again, we need to be careful of hindsight, but I think there was certainly, if you, know, if you read Reagan's speeches and you, you, know, you look at Reagan, and actually even better watch them, I think there's a, that, that optimism uh, really comes through in a, in a way that is, is, is wholly missing, wholly missing today. Yes, I think uh, if uh, Reagan, uh, the word that most accurately summed up Reagan, I suppose, is optimism. And the word that uh, comes to mind with the Trump Republican Party is anger. Uh, Reagan's a very forward-looking Republican. Uh, you know, he's always talking about America's best days are ahead of it. And, uh, you know, the whole thing about they, they both had MAGA slogans that 1980 Reagan ran on the slogan, let's make America great again. Uh, Trump uh, ran the course on make America great again. But somehow uh, Reagan had a vision of the future as even better. You know, the last uh, speech of any note was the 1992 Republican Convention. And he says, we are the country of tomorrow. A revolution did not end at Yorktown, whereas I think Trump, I'm not taking a cheap shot here, doesn't even know that Yorktown was a battle in the American Revolution and uh, probably doesn't understand history in that way. You know, if you think about Trump, make America great again, what's he thinking about? 1950s, not the 1960s, surely. Uh, we, 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 you know, this is something I've always worried, wondered about Trump. Okay, when was uh, the ideal of American greatness? And if you say the 50s, that's very uh, significant because, of course, uh, uh, if you were black, the 50s weren't that great. I don't think they were that great if you were a woman uh, with aspirations to be anything other than a homemaker. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I, 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 I,
it, you know, in the sense of it really, it was a, really, it was about the last four years. It was about the car industry. Yeah. Than... But in response to what you said, uh, let's not sugarcoat the 1980s. Uh, uh, let's remember the 1980s when a pretty bad decade for young black males. Uh, this is when the uh, intensification of the war on drugs led to mass incarceration of uh, uh, young blacks uh, to, to the extent that some scholars have seen this as a policy of racial control. And uh, it's worth noting that however sunny and optimistic Ronald Reagan was, uh, that was not a view held by uh, most African-Americans. In 1986, uh, one poll of African-Americans by the Washington Post uh, found 56% of respondents thought he was a racist. And, uh, um, you know, you come back to this again, uh, uh, when Reagan died, uh, he was celebrated by white America, but not by black America. So, you, you know, it's... It, it depends who's looking at Reagan and who's uh, seeing him as sunny and, and optimistic. But that's yeah. true of every politician. I'm sure that, yeah, it's a podcast for a different day, actually, to think about the different ways, perhaps in which Reagan and Thatcher, who were seen very much from, in the same way at the time, but the different ways in which they remembered, I think. Uh, mm. Yeah, anyway, I'll let Claudia jump in. I'm hogging the question. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the, you know, how how far to the right was Reagan and thinking about the kind of the, you know, the, the hope versus fear kind of agenda that, that, that one can have. I mean, there was a real sense with him, I think, that, um, you know, again, bearing in mind everything that you've just said, but there was a sense that sort of radiated from him that things can only get better. And I mean, you could maybe hopefully apply that to, to, to all Americans at the time because, you know, they were you know quite difficult for, for, for certain groups, as, as we've just said. Um, if we think about, if we just bring it forward a bit and think about sort of, you know, uh, uh, there's Reagan and there's Reaganism, I suppose, and in, in a similar way that there's Trump and Trumpism. And I wonder now if, you know, you've, you said how, how you use the word saddened in relation to how Reagan might, might, might sort of perceive uh, today's GOP. If we think about where where things are, I know we're going to we're we're going to reflect back um, in 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 a few minutes on 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 um, uh, sort of more historical issues. But just just for a moment, I don't want to spend too much time talking about Ron DeSantis. But I'm mindful that he is kind of at the moment outflanking Trump or trying to outflank Trump in in terms of Trumpism. So he's being trying to be more Trumpist than Trump. And I wonder is that somewhere you see the party? capable and willing to go like yeah kind of f further to the right of trump really or, or in, in, in a more kind of um uh, policy-based way or is that not a strategy that's going to work for desantis do you think that it's more about donald trump than actual trumpism i, I i'm not sure myself well you know at the moment it is trump's party and uh, it seems that every time there's an indictment uh, against him or uh, an alleged misdemeanor, uh, the party rallies to him. But uh, you know, I, I do have the feeling that uh, you know we focus on Trump uh, as if uh, you know there's this man walking around uh, Mar-a-Lago uh, and uh, he had become the uh, I don't know the Abraham Lincoln of uh, uh, white Republicans. Uh, uh, whereas, in fact, uh, I think uh, we ignore what's happening in the states and the localities 
and the community governmental organizations, particularly school boards, at our peril. There's, there's something going on in America. You know, we just we just see in Britain the highlights of uh, uh, national politics and a few states uh, 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 thrown into the mix. But you know, uh, there is this battle for the meaning of America. And, you know, it goes right down. It used to be said that, uh, you know, the party would elect uh, a, a ticket down to the local dog catcher. Well, now dog catching isn't so important. Dog whistling is. But uh, fundamentally, you know, it goes right down to school boards. And uh, uh, DeSantis in Florida is right in the forefront of that battle of uh, academic and scholarly freedom, book banning and so on. And, uh, you know, it's a minority who want this, but politics is not a mass phenomenon in terms of activism. Uh, you know, this is something I think we've got to grasp. But for most Americans, politics isn't that important, even in today's polarized times. Uh, maybe once every four years, yes. But for uh, uh, supporters of what I would call Trumpism, as opposed to merely Trump, I think politics is very, very important, and they are gearing as if for a political war against the opposition. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is, you, I mean, the emphasis on looking beyond the national level, looking below the national level to get an understanding of what's happening within both parties, but I think in terms of some of the actions which have been taken most, obviously within the Republican Party, um, we we don't need to get into debates on uh, trans issues now, but again, it's a good example of the way in which I think at mm. state level, I think it's about 20 states now, Republican, under, largely under Republican control, which have introduced legislation on, yeah. on trans rights. So, when, I guess I say, without getting into debates about that, it does, you know, clearly it's, it's, it's activism at a local level um, and clearly is appealing to, you know, it's designed to appeal to core. Republican voters yeah. in that context. Um, do you think are there any? I mean, I, I, beyond just just and you know, I, when the point today is not to discuss the 2024 Republican nominee nation battle. But just, do you think there are any candidates beyond Trump and DeSantis? I mean, it's very, I know it's very speculative. I mean, the, the, the people who in normal times might to me seem like serious candidates, Tim Scott and Nikki Haley. But I think, is there any room for them? Well, my view is that the more Republican candidates there are, the better it is for Trump, uh, because, uh, you know, they split up the anti-Trump vote. Uh, if Trump was running against DeSantis and DeSantis alone, uh, I think that uh, uh, the situation would be uh, less clear-cut. Uh, I can't, well, we're, we're still 18 months out. Another historian, I should say, let's focus on the past rather than try to explain the future that isn't here yet. But I can't see anybody defeating Trump at the moment. Uh, um, th that said, there are many contingencies that could happen. Uh, and um, uh, you never know uh, uh, if DeSantis uh, uh, emulates um, uh, uh, by winning the uh, uh, by winning in uh, the in Iowa, and then to, and like the cruise goes on to develop momentum, you know he could make it. So 
uh, it's not out of the question, but uh, if I were to bet, uh, my money would be on Trump, regrettably. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Well, let's, yeah, really, Trump or DeSantis, let's leave that aside for a moment. I mean, just to pivot from that, in terms of Trump being the Republican nominee, then that leads us with another likely rerun of, of Biden and, and, and Trump. So that takes us into sort of this, takes us to the other uh, aspects of your work, which is thinking about the Democratic Party and, and its political and policy history. So um, I, this is a, 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 you know, to think, is, is Trump the party? Is the current Republican Party still the party of Reagan? Is you know there, there are clear lineages and, and and you can you can track that through that over a longer time frame. Do you, to what extent do you think that the Democrats can still justifiably claim to be the party? And this goes back to your work on Roosevelt. So is the contemporary Democratic Party still identifiably the party of the New Deal and Roosevelt? Do you think? Well, it is uh, in the broadest sense. Um, we've got to realise that. Uh, um, the uh, conditions in which the Roosevelt Democratic Party came into being uh, were somewhat unique, uh, and uh, that uh, uh, the the so-called New Deal order, uh, if uh, I can use that phrase that uh, a number of historians uh, now uh, employ, uh, the New Deal order lasted up until the end of the 70s. And the associated liberal ascendancy that um, was based on a New Deal commitment to ensure economic security, um, uh, not initially, but ultimately group rights and fundamentally uh, a guarantee of uh, uh, American democracy. Um, but in the 1980s, the Democrats, of course, uh, uh, came up against uh, a new economic doctrine, and uh, they've had to uh, adapt to that. Uh, you know, some historians see Bill Clinton as the Eisenhower of the, of the Democratic Party, having to adapt to a new conservative order in the ways that Eisenhower had to adapt uh, to uh, a dominant liberal order and try to find a middle line. Uh, I think the Democratic Party today has a different set of issues, but in Biden, uh, it has a president who is the uh, uh, greatest admirer of FDR of any president in, on the Democratic side since LBJ. Paradoxically, I was going to say since LBJ, but of course, uh, that's uh, a Miss Ronald Reagan, who is also a great admirer of FDR. But uh, talking in terms of uh, uh, the Democratic Party, uh, you know, Biden sees this as, as a moment of renewal, uh, of necessary moment of renewal and reassertion of American democracy, uh, having come through the pandemic. That's a crisis uh, of. Uh, a different kind of crisis, but a very significant crisis. FDR with the president in crisis, but FDR also takes office at a time when American democracy is under threat. Had the depression gone on for much longer, would American constitutional traditions have been sustained? Um, FDR uh, thought not. Um, 
just before his inauguration, uh, his, one of his uh, friends said, uh, if you restore faith in government's capacity to uh, deal with the economy, you will go down in history as America's greatest president. And Roosevelt responded, if I don't, I'll be the last president. You know, that he, he saw the rise of possible authoritarian figures. And of course, uh, that is exactly the situation that Biden faces in that, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the institutions of American democracy are under threat. Uh, you have uh, a, a move away from majoritarianism today, most obviously in the case of the Supreme Court, uh, but also in case of, you know, look at the Senate, uh, um, all these uh, small states which are fundamentally red, and they're uh, a ticket to uh, not perpetual uh, Republican uh, uh, domination, but it's very difficult for the Democrats to hold on to the Senate. They have it now, but it's a, it's a big struggle. And even in the House, you know, uh, by and large, Democrats tend to win more votes in House elections, far more votes in House elections nationwide than the uh, uh, the Republicans do, but the Republican vote is more efficiently spread. Uh, so, you know, you, some people would say, and I, I have to say that some truth in this, that the American democracy is under threat. So there is a comp comparability between Biden and FDR in terms of the challenge they face, uh, not in terms of their style. Uh, and, of course, Biden doesn't have the uh, political vigor and vivacity of, uh, of FDR. The Democratic Party he leads is more left-wing than he is, whereas in the case of FDR, he was in tune with the new forces coming into the Democratic Party in the 1930s who wanted change, trade unions, um, urban ethnics, women, uh, and African-Americans. Yeah, thanks, Jim. We'll put a, put a pen in the question around democracy and maybe come back to that later. Um, just, uh, just hogging this bit. Um, the, the, and your point about the clearly this, this shift in American society over the last 100 years account for a lot of the change. But if we just look at the economic policy, other, and uh, quite recent phenomena has been the way in which the Biden administration has sort of now decided to own the term Bidenomics um, mm -hmm. and, and, and try and sell what's good about the economy. Do you think, is, is Bidenomics, going, going, again, going, going back to the question of comparisons, because there's always been this temptation, I think, well, not always, but with, with, with Obama, you know, remember the Time magazine cover where they mocked by uh, Obama or President Roosevelt, and again, some comparisons with with, with Biden and, and, and Roosevelt. I don't think anyone compared Clinton to Roosevelt, to be honest, but, um, but no. is, is that a legitimate comparison in terms of economic policy, given the very different, clearly the very different circumstances, in terms of what Biden's trying to do and the room for manoeuvre he's got to do it in? Well, there is and there isn't. Uh, FDR assumed office at a time of the greatest economic crisis in American history. But there's also a sense uh, that uh, the American economy is now a mature economy, uh, that the uh, opportunities for growth that, uh, that existed in the 19th century 
development of new land, development of new industries like railroads, industrial revolution, uh, these, these are all diminishing. And what now has to be done is a more equitable distribution of existing resources. Uh, growth, economic growth did not become an issue for the New Deal until its mild Keynesian phase in the late 1930s and economic growth was uh, embraced as an issue then in, when the, the, the renewal of the American economy in World War II showed what was possible in the post-war era. But in many regards, the early New Deal was about stabilization and recovery, not about growth. Biden uh, is taking a long view, certainly. Uh, there's no sense that uh, the American economy is in the kind of mature stage of development where there aren't opportunities for uh, new industries, uh, new enterprise to emerge. But there's a threat of China. And what Biden is trying to do is to improve America's infrastructure, improve America's uh, IT uh, 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 resources, improve its brain power, improve industries that are going to be part of the future. Uh, and in that sense, uh, he is pursuing what some call an industrial policy, which was not really part of the New Deal's brief. Thanks, also, could I just one one thing that's striking me uh, listening to the 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 the, the, the use of Bidenomics now it's it's kind of in the ether very much at the moment. It's obviously been kind of used mm. as some kind of bumper sticker campaign slogan kind of thing. And previously, it might have been that you know if you, pe the, the people who talked about Bidenomics might have been you know kind of a, economist nerds or politics nerds or whatever. Whereas now it's come into the mainstream more or less. Um, I wonder, is that is is that Biden kind of maybe owning it a bit more retrospectively now? Because the economy is quite strong and and quite good. Obviously, it could be better, but you know, unemployment's low, etc. It's 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 in a relatively good place. So is is he sort of trying to take the phrase, make it his own, and say, look, things are actually okay. Things are better than people think. Because if you look at the public opinion polls, people are anxious, they're concerned about yeah. the future, they're negative about where the country's going, blah, blah. But if you look at like kind of economic data, it, it seems to be okay. It seems to be going in a relatively um, uh, optimistic and, and, and strong direction. So he's got a kind of a powerful story to tell in that regard, doesn't he? Coming up to 2024, as in, this is what's happening on my watch, this is what I've done, and here's where we're going. And he's not just playing to the immediate, um, you know, short-term uh, sort of benefit and, 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 and voter rallying, because a lot of that Bidenomics agenda seems to me to be like a, a long game. He's looking like forward to the future. Um, and that's yeah. got to be attractive to, to, to some, at least. Yeah, well, that is true. Um, it, interestingly, uh, Alex said about uh, the uh, Time magazine cover, uh, Bidenomics has also made several covers of The Economist, although The Economist is critical of it, its industrial policy inclinations. Uh, but it is interesting. Uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, infrastructure investment by the government now. And oh, what's also very significant is if you look where this infrastructure investment is going and you expect it to be going to states like New York, Illinois, um, 
the, the upper Midwest as part of the uh, uh, quasi-pork barrel politics. But it's actually going to a, a lot of Sunbelt states uh, in the South. Uh, the re- big beneficiaries of uh, Biden-era public investment have been Texas and South Carolina, of all places. Uh, uh, and uh, um, this is playing a very long game because, of course, uh, uh, any uh, 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 any public project that uh, uh, benefits from federal monies, uh, Biden or one of his administration guys turns up pretty the same this the other day, and lo and behold, uh, uh, a Republican congressman who has voted against. Uh, the the legislation uh, from which the money is derived also turned up and said, I did this, I got this, this. So, you know, it, it is a dangerous game, but but it is a long game. And, uh, uh, it, it, you know, America needs uh, to take a long view of uh, political and economic development. Uh, it's been, uh, it hasn't done that. It hasn't been able to do that for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I would I would take the time of the Biden administration just to say credit for this, that it's it, it's particularly. I know Democrats have this hope that Texas is becoming a purple state, which seems a bit optimistic in the near term. But South Carolina becoming a even a sort of less than deep red state seems a long way off. So maybe just give them credit for you know this is the policy that's based on national interest, I guess, rather than... Yeah. than, than the and, and maybe even beyond national interest as well. I mean, I don't know if I'm sort of projecting too 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 far beyond what, what he's trying to do. But I mean, I think like the, 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 the Labour Party in the UK are very interested in the, the kind of the nuts and bolts of Bidenomics and, and yeah. what the kind of structural process of, of, of that is as, as a kind of a, you know, a possible template for their own, you know, if they get into power or whatever. And also just the idea, I mean, even, you know, publications like the FT saying that, you know, Bidenomics is going to roll out in a way that's sort of beyond Biden himself, that, you know, this is not going to be yeah. a sort of a genie that gets put back in the bottle and things like greening the economy and stuff that, you know, other countries are, are doing anyway. But that, that, that sort of approach that the Biden administration is particularly taking is is seems to me above and beyond just a strategy for you know eighteen months time or whatever it is, which is really admirable, I think, if if a bit risky. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the last Democratic president who had an economic strategy named after him, of course, was Bill Clinton, Clintonomics, and uh, that came a cropper with the. Uh, uh, 2001 uh, uh, Wall Street crash uh, and the emergence of uh, George Bush. Uh, um, Biden, however, I think uh, is uh, uh, taking a more forward-looking uh, uh, strategy. And what links him to FDR is that the state has a very act, the national state has a very active role in guiding economic development. And uh, that that is one of the fundamental legacies of the New Deal, that uh, uh, you can't leave things to the private market, uh, the vagaries of uh, capitalism can't be uh, trusted uh, uh, to deliver uh, uh, in the national interest. You have to have an active state uh, and uh, you know, uh, you, you might say that um, 
the New Deal did this. Uh, um, it, you know, I, I, I've asked several classes of students uh, when I, uh, uh, postgraduates, I might say, when I teach the New Deal, okay, other than Franklin D. Roosevelt, name me a New Dealer. So they go to Eleanor Roosevelt, yeah, yeah, Harry Hopkins, yeah, Henry Wallace, yeah, okay, and then after about five, they stop. And then I say, how about Jesse Jones? And they say, who? And I say, well, Jesse Jones was the Houston banker uh, whom Roosevelt picked to uh, head the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. And uh, Jesse Jones was an old Bryanite who hated Wall Street. And consequently, he used the capital resources of the RFC to develop uh, the Southwest and laid the foundation for the development of the Sun Belt, which of course was the long-term consequence of uh, infrastructure investment in the 1930s and 1940s. So, you know, the New Deal had this developmental aspect to it, uh, which we tend to forget uh, because of the focus on economic recovery. Uh, but Biden, I think, is taking a leaf out of SDR's book in that regard, in the sense of looking to the future and creating a more stable economy through government involvement, uh, not government control, but uh, government, uh, 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 how can I put this, uh, uh, government management uh, to, to try to shift resources around the country uh, to better distribution on a pen. And just, and just quick, if you can do this briefly, and without getting into the weeds here, you mentioned the economists' attacks on, or tax or criticisms, perhaps is a milder word to use, yeah. of that industrial policy. What, what, what grounds does the economist, what grounds is it sceptical of, of, of the bad Well, the, you know, the economist still clings to this notion that uh, uh, government has a role, but not too, not too dirty the role. And... Uh, uh, it is opposed to industrial policy because you're trying to pick winners. And uh, uh, the economists feel that there should be uh, more free flow of capital and investment because business knows better where to invest. Uh, and that uh, there's a lot of waste and inefficiency involved in uh, government industrial policy. And uh, it can sometimes be the wrong industry to develop. I think Biden is relatively uh, uh, immune from that charge. You know, he's trying to develop green industries. He's trying to bring foreign investment into the country. Uh, and uh, he's, uh, you know, trying to uh, uh, spread, spread the goodies around. Uh, and in a way, I think that that is uh, a very important thing to do, uh, you know, from thrives on the feeling of many Americans outside the large metropolises that they have been overlooked, largely white Americans. And if you can show what government can do in terms of uh, uh, infrastructure development, uh, uh, indirect creation of jobs uh, via public investment, uh, then uh, uh, government will be seen in a more positive light. Uh, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, America, many white Americans in what 
we can call the flyover states of the middle, the small towns of Pennsylvania, uh, uh, Ohio, Indiana, etc. You know, they 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 don't see government doing anything for them, and that is one of the reasons for the polarization. Uh, uh, so, you know, this I, I don't know if it's part of Biden's strategy uh, or the Biden administration's strategy. We should focus purely on the president himself, the much bigger array of policymakers. Uh, but I think uh, uh, that building back in FDR's day, government was good. Trump made it bad. Ronald Reagan made it bad. Ronald Reagan said government is... Well, I think the Democrats are trying to restore uh, that positive view of government, uh, which uh, FDR created. I think also as well, just one thing, just thinking about that, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the long game is great, but obviously doesn't always kind of give people a, a sense of, you know, well, what about me today? You know, mm-hmm. never mind my grandchildren or somebody else's grandchildren. But there are kind of smaller... Um, you know, kind of quick wins as well, I think, aren't there? Things, I know I was reading about things like um, people being able to get um, hearing aids over the counter now rather than some convoluted prescription yeah. route. So, like, that's just a one random tiny thing. But those kinds of immediate benefits that people, that's the kind of stuff that people chat about in a cafe, isn't it? Oh, wait till I tell you about this thing that happened, you know, that sort of thing, which gives people a feeling that things are actually getting better, even though there might be relatively trivial, but I think it kind of symbolically, they carry quite a bit of weight. And he seems to be good at that. I think Clinton was quite good at doing that sort of thing as well. Even when Clinton was losing big, there were some times where he was able to kind of put treats or, or kind of quick um, you know, benefits out there for, for, for voters. And I, it seems to me that the Biden administration is astute at that. Um, so so working the kind of the long game, the shorter game, big projects and smaller ones as well. So there, there's an awful lot going on, it seems, you know. For the, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, if there's an Achilles heel in the, well, there are several problematic issues, uh, but uh, the big Achilles heel the ones the Republicans are playing on is inflation. The one the Republicans are playing on is inflation, okay? Everybody understands inflation. You know, I'm paying more today than I paid last year. And last year I was paying more than I paid two years ago. Now, if inflation comes down, and at the moment it looks as if it is coming down, that um, gas uh, prices that the pump are coming down, Food prices haven't come down as much, although they've come down far more than they have in Britain. If by the 2024 election, the sting had been taken out of the inflation issue, and that uh, uh, the and this is something Biden can't control, the Federal Reserve is easing borrowing requirements. Uh, don't forget that in the American system, uh, the um, Federal Reserve controls the all-important credit and monetary policy. Of economic policy, it's not within the president's gift. But if if inflation is coming down, uh, that would tend to encourage the Federal Reserve to ease monetary policy, uh, which has been tightened of late, not in draconian fashion compared to what Paul Volcker did in the early Reagan years, but compared to what monetary policy has been 
since the um, great uh, crash and recession of 2007-9. Uh, you know, if all that were to come to pass in the next 18, 18 months, uh, if the economy is looking good and people... And very importantly, if people are feeling good about it, because the one that worries me as, uh, from a democratic perspective is the polls that show a constant and clear majority believing that the country's on the wrong track. That's the one you've got to worry about. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I do want us to very quickly get on to think about broader questions of governability and democracy. But just, I think the very the latest data that's come out suggests that wage growth has overtaken inflation in terms of, you know, wage growth has just gone above the inflation rate uh, in the last release of data. Now, clearly that's a, that could be a blip rather than a trend. Um, but if it is a trend, that then there's 18 months in which that might, um, yeah. It, you know that might lead to a change in that public opinion, but if, if inflation jumps again, then that's a that's a that's a problem. And just to say, any US or UK listeners, we're talking about the US inflation rate coming down. Sadly, we doesn't seem to be the case here. Claude, I know you wanted to ask quickly about sort of government capacity and democracy as well. Oh yeah, there's some big questions considering we've only got, <laughs> got, got, got a few minutes left. I guess just one one super quick question, uh, Ewan, before we kind of go to our, our, our closing comments. Um, I wondered if, if if in all of this, can you see, or well, I think you do see, but could you maybe just give us give us your thoughts on how how you see the ways in which FDR was actually a role model for Reagan? Well. Um, Reagan, of course, used to be a Democrat, voted FDR for FDR four times uh, in all of FDR's elections, uh, uh, but came to the conclusion that uh, uh, FDR had always intended his programs to be temporary emergency responses to the Great Depression. This was a rationalization. FDR regarded programs as permanent. Uh, Reagan recognized that FDR uh, had uh, captured the mood of the nation uh, through very positive public political communication. And Reagan models himself on FDR. Uh, he, okay, so you might say, well, of course, Reagan was a, an actor, so he knew all about communication. There was more to it than that. Uh, and um, uh, Ray, Ray, Reagan knew just like FDR, about the need for performance. Uh, you know, we think of FDR as the first radio president. He was also the first newsreel president, sound newsreel president. Newsreel is very, very important, often overlooked. Uh, FDR also traveled the country on a regular basis, uh, even though they, he didn't get on board planes, he got on board trains. Trains were his famous, favorite mode of travel could get off, uh, could, you know, stop, then do uh, whistle-stop uh, speeches from the back of the train. Um, but, but coming back to this uh, idea, you know, Ronald Reagan introduced in 1982 weekly radio commentaries about his presidency, and he's a very good communicator on radio. And, you know, you can listen to the radio anywhere, different TV. Uh, you know, Reagan learns the art of, Reagan sees uh, FDR as the greatest 
practitioner of political communication whom he wants to emulate. And he recognizes uh, the necessity not only for optimism, but sharing, taking the American people into his confidence about why tax cuts are needed, about why uh, Russia needs to, Soviet Union needs to be dealt with in the way that he is doing. He's very good at explaining his policy, um, uh, but of course he's he is just before the coming A of 24-hour news and B of uh, uh, the end of uh, the um, fairness doctrine, which is in uh, administration, FCC, Federal Communications Commission, uh, it started, it removed in 1987. There's a fragmentation of the media uh, as a result of uh, um, uh, the coming of digitalization, coming of the, the internet, uh, the uh, immediate news, and then, uh, you know, you, what, what you now have is Americans listen to the political, the, the political channels, the channels rather, uh, the outlets, which confirm their opinions. In other words, you don't have debate, you have the confirmation of your opinion. This guy thinks like me. And therefore, you don't have that opportunity for debate, exchange of ideas, which, which you could have in FDR's day. FDR built up an intimate relationship with the American people via his public communication, but it isn't possible today. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'm I'm mindful of the time we've we've reached our, our uh, 45 minutes. I wondered if we could just ask you um, in closing, you and have you any particular recommendations, any any reading, viewing, listening sources and resources that you would recommend to to, to listeners? We'd love to hear. Okay, well, I've got. Um, a couple of things that uh, I would recommend. I'm an old guy, okay? I'm afraid I, uh, I like to hold books in my hands, so I'm not going to recommend uh, any uh, streaming or podcasts, all right? Uh, but if anybody is interested in the presidency and uh, uh, political uh, communication, uh, I strongly recommend a book by David uh, Greenberg called uh, The Republic of Spin. And it's a history of presidential communication from Theodore Roosevelt down to Barack Obama. Really lovely read and a fun read. You don't say that about most academic books. Um, I also very much like, it came out about five or six years ago. Uh, it's uh, by an American historian called Jeremy, Jeremy Suri, called The Impossible Presidency. And Suri's argument is that uh, the responsibilities of the power of, of the presidency have become so great uh, that it's not really possible for the promise of the presidency to be fulfilled any longer. And he regards FDR as being the last president when the presidency was sufficiently small. And even though it was growing hugely in FDR's time, it hadn't reached the stage of uh, later development, and FDR was able to exercise leadership uh, over the presidential branch in a way that many of his successors have been unable to do because it has grown so large. 
Thanks, you. I, I, Fantastic. I'd really like to get you back on at some point to talk us through that about the presidency, actually, and particularly that the, the sort of odd conversation we sometimes have with one, one side sort of looking at the series argument, and I agree it's a, a really good book to read, the, the job's just too big for anyone, and simultaneously we've got this school of thought that the presidency's got too powerful uh, and abuses power. Now, the two aren't as in contradiction as that sounds, actually. I think that they, they sort of play off each other, but um, it'd be great to have you back. And what I can say, I haven't got a... You and isn't my PhD supervisor, I can say. Uh, I'm not going to... Please, if anyone is listening and hasn't read Ewan's books on, on FDR and, and, and Reagan, then they are required reading. Stop now. what you're doing now. Yeah, I, in terms <laughs> of, you know, you yeah. made the point, lots of academic books are, particularly, I think, in political science, they are not bad. They're, well, they're not fun to read. They're, they're, they're part of your job rather than, than something that you enjoy doing. But I think Ewan's books are... They are thoroughly scholarly, yet utterly readable, which is uh, which is something that we should all aspire to. Us, but few, very few of us get anywhere close to. It. So uh, I can say that with great sincerity. I second that. Well, 100%. thank you very much. That's very kind of you uh, to say so. Uh, um, I, I, if I can just end on that, uh, uh, as I've grown older, I think it is very important that we try to reach out beyond specialist audiences and uh, I'm afraid one of the things we have to do is uh, communicate better, partly by writing better, but uh, also by doing the kinds of uh, initiatives that uh, you have taken in your podcast. So I wholeheartedly congratulate you on that. Well, we went on Thank that. Thank you so much. <laughs> Well, I don't think we're going to we're going to take August off. I think is that the plan? We of... are, and we will be back with renewed vigor in September. So watch this space, and we'll be uh, tweeting about the next topic when the time comes. But for now, we want to say thank you so much, Professor Ewan Morgan. It's been a pleasure, and we truly hope you'll come back. Yes, and well, for those of you who are still listening, please spread the word. And if you if you, want, if you like it, and if you're still listening, you don't like it, then. <laughs> Greetings, everybody. Uh, my name is Clodagh Harrington. I'm delighted to welcome you to uh, our September recording of A Chicken in Every Pot podcast. Um, I work at UCC and uh, I teach politics and history there. I'm going to pass you over to my esteemed co-presenter. Hello everyone, it's uh, Alex, Alex Warden here, I'm Social Professor in Politics at the University of Leicester. should say, as always, that uh, all opinions expressed on my own, uh, rather than institutions. Um, but yeah, Claudia, do you want to introduce today's guest and the topic and get really excited about what we're going to talk Absolutely, yes, indeed, I am. I am genuinely delighted, as always, to, to welcome our guest, but particularly today, I'm thrilled to see Mara Oliver, who is Associate Professor in U.S. History at Reading University. Uh, Mara is a political historian and a digital humanist uh, who works at the intersection of history and digital technologies, which sounds very, very futuristic, I must say, for a historian. Um, so Mara's research focus is, is, is basically it's, it's the U.S. presidency, as, as I know very well, uh, but also uh, very interestingly, cultural heritage and climate change diplomacy as well. And it's the climate change diplomacy element of her studies and research that we're going to focus on today. Um, so Mara, we know that there's a couple of things forthcoming, uh, which we can hopefully come back to you on at a future date when, when they've actually hit the shelves. Um, 
And these are on U.S. public diplomacy and climate change and also um, a publication on Obama and climate change, probably both hopefully coming out in 2024, if all goes to plan. Um, so thank you, Mara. Welcome. And I suppose we will dive straight in and ask maybe if somebody was listening and they didn't quite know exactly what climate diplomacy actually is, could you maybe just give us a, a couple of sentences on that? Yeah, hello, and thank you so much for having me today. First of all, I'm a big fan of your podcast, so it's great to have a chance to have a chat with you both today. Um, like, with easy question, <laughs> what is climate diplomacy? <laughs> Very simple and complicated question at the same time, because the you know, like any aspect of diplomacy, there are so many actors at state and non-state level, so many layers of involvement and activities, you know, from bilateralists to multilateralists that are part of diplomacy, especially climate diplomacy, that it's difficult to give one concise uh, definition of what climate diplomacy actually is. But I will say that um, climate diplomacy refers to the use of diplomatic channels and strategies to address global climate change and its impact on international relations. So, in other words, it involves uh, negotiating and implementing climate-related policies, treaties, agreements and in, at international level, as well as cooperation between countries and other stakeholders to reduce uh, greenhouse uh, gas emissions, adapt to the impacts of climate change, and promote sustainable uh, development, among uh, um, other uh, issues. I will say that at political level, there are four main strengths of climate diplomacy. First of all, commitment to multilateralism. And here it's where it gets so complicated because the more nations and the more stakeholders are involved, the more difficult it is to negotiate an agreement, a treaty or a compromise that is satisfactory to all parties involved. Uh, you know, the Paris Climate Treaty of 2015 is a successful example of negotiation, but not all agreements were uh, successful or more or less easy to negotiate. Um, number two, um, it's important to address the implications of climate change on peace and security. Number three, the importance of accelerating domestic action and raising uh, global ambition, i.e., Pretty much every nation that comes to the negotiating table brings a, um, a reflection of their domestic situation and interests. Uh, so if the action doesn't start from home, then it's difficult to, to raise global ambitions or reach any agreement uh, at the international table. And finally, <clears throat> I would say enhancing international climate cooperation through advocacy and outreach. And I think this is a very important aspect because it goes beyond traditional climate diplomacy and it involves uh, uh, those non-state actors, uh, external policy tools, public diplomacy, cultural diplomacy, and, and so on and so forth in, in raising understanding. So it's not a short definition, sorry. That's <laughs> my definition. <laughs> That's that, that's really great, actually. Um, it's it's like as as you said, it's it's a very clear, straightforward explanation, and yet it totally highlights how how multifaceted and multi-layered and complex this is. And I suppose it's a good reminder, or to me anyway, that 
Like getting anything done is so difficult at, at, at all levels. But when you're, when you're talking kind of that supranational approach yeah. to try and sort of drag everybody forward, um, it, it is quite astonishing that actually anything is achieved, I think. Now, that's great. Yeah. Thanks very much for, for setting that up for us. I suppose maybe I might just backtrack slightly just to get a sense of where, I suppose, how you have landed within all of this, you know, your trajectory um, yeah. into to writing and, and, and researching <clears throat> this. Yeah, for many reasons, then that all uh, converged together. Uh, first, uh, I'm by training a historian of U.S. diplomacy, and in the early years of my academic career and in my PhD, I focus on diplomacy on U.S.-China relations. So now U.S. and China are the two biggest polluters and the two biggest economies. So in this sense, uh, uh, you know, looking at climate diplomacy was uh, a logical evolution of my earlier work. Uh, number two, I kind of came in, <laughs> I started my PhD just a few months before uh, President Obama was elected in 2008. And he was the first post-Cold War president uh, to be serious about climate change. He understood the long-term impact of climate change. And most of all, he understood uh, that we needed to start doing something about it back then in 2008. Now, of course, we can debate forever whether he succeeded or not in implementing his climate ambitions and why. But the fact remains that he put climate change on the U.S. foreign policy agenda. And finally, um, you know, personal interest. Climate change impacts my life and my world every day, like everybody else. I've seen and experienced in the last 15 years how small changes in expected weather partners, seasonal patterns, temperatures have turned into catastrophic events. Now, 2023 has been particularly heartbreaking and unfortunately every year sets a new negative record. So, yeah, that's my journey into climate diplomacy. <laughs> Okay, that's great. That, that's really interesting to hear. Yeah. Sorry, Alex. I'd just say it's not a happy journey in some ways then, in terms of, you know, just the, it's not a happy topic. I don't know that's a silly thing to say, but just in the sense no. of the reasons for concentrating on this uh, are, are, are grim, really. But just, yeah, it's time to play the music. <laughs> yeah, before we get to, into, to, to today's events, I think one of the things that might surprise some people is the history of this from a US perspective <clears throat> is a little bit, I guess now, I mean, maybe it's a thing we'll talk about later, something I want to put opinion, is the partisan divide in US public opinion. Mm -hmm. but, but that's not historically always been the case. It's not always been a simple case of Republicans verging on climate skepticism and Democrats uh, supporting uh, action on climate change. Yeah. Uh, and I know in, in terms of, then, then, so for example, do you want to give us just a little bit of the backstory from Nixon and, and his, and, mm -hmm. and, and climate was understood differently back in the 1960s and 70s, I think, than it is today. So I'm not necessarily talking about quite comparing apples to apples here, but certainly in terms of environmentalism and the environmental movement, which sort of really emerges in the US in the, in the early 1970s. And Nixon does respond to that in a, in a, in a I guess, in quite a positive way, I guess. Yes, absolutely, you're right. So if we look at the historical trajectory, we first need to talk about environmental diplomacy. 
um, climate change uh, is a more recent uh, issue which came up in the uh, in the 80s. Now, contemporary American environmental diplomacy has its root in the 70s, as you correctly said, uh, Alex, with Nixon. It was a time marked by um, an increase in environmental uh, awareness and activism at all levels, you know, international level uh, and national level uh, and, and root grass movement. And President Nixon oversaw one of the most innovative periods of environmental policy making and law making in the US, starting with the National uh, Environmental Policy Act in 69, which then led to the uh, Environmental Protection Agency in the 70s, which is still uh, with us today. Now, these policies were um, largely in response to the growth of environmental organizations and public awareness, which then culminated with the first Earth Day in uh, on the 22nd of April 1970. So uh, it was a you know great moment for environmental history, diplomacy and, and the movement, because at the same time, you have a, a strong um, domestic environmental program that gave much credibility uh, to American leadership uh, at international level, starting with the 1972 Stockholm Conference and so on and so forth. So the two were really going um, hand in hand. Unfortunately, since the end of the Cold War, uh, this leadership has fallen. I will say that the U.S. military has kept, uh, um, you know, has been very much uh, interested and, and involved in energy and climate security, but there has been a failure to adjust the country's overall uh, grand strategy in response to this growing um, threat of, of global environment uh, uh, risk. Why? One, because things got complicated, and as I said earlier, then the word climate change and climate change related issues, which, uh, you know, it's a blur line between environment and climate change, emerged in the 1980s. the other issue is that uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall complicated the international situation, and there were, um, you know, many more priorities in in this new world order, where new different threats uh, emerged, and the U.S. had to think of how to adjust to this new world uh, after so many years of bipolar order. But also, and I think especially. <laughs> the rising political polarization within uh, the US, which we've seen pretty much has permeated every issue, but especially environmental and then climate change um, issues. There are mm, significant uh, segments of the population, and this is on the increase, thank God, uh, that are recognizing the urgency of addressing climate change. Uh, but there are also still significant parts of the population that are skeptical or outright dismissive of the issue. And we saw just a few weeks ago at the first GOP uh, presidential debate that a potential presidential candidate, Ramaswamy, called climate change a hoax, a phrase made popular uh, by Trump during his uh, campaign and his presidency. Now, this has made very, very difficult to build the international consensus to give credibility to U.S. Uh, diplomacy, but also to give stability to U.S. Uh, diplomacy and international uh, negotiations. 
because right now, let's face it, we could have another Trump or we could have another GOP climate skeptic uh, president in the White House in 2024. And what message does he send to the international um, community? Uh, and it kind of reinforces this, you know, seesaw that I've just described, where according to getting to the White House, the climate change diplomacy and policy might change. So there's no stability at home for the U.S. and in the international um, order. Um, yeah, go on, folks. Sorry. No, I just the, 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 there's so much to, to, to consider that there was just a couple of things that kind of sprung to mind from, from mm-hmm. what you said. I, I remember um, I, I haven't got it to hand now, but uh, maybe about three years ago, um, there was a, a, a an opinion piece in the in the Washington Post talking about how you know the ways in which one could get conservatives or at least some conservatives around mm. to thinking about sort of constructively about climate solutions, whatever, rather than just yeah. having that sort of anti um, position that a lot of people would, would, would easily take. Um, and I was thinking back to, I mean, it was George Schultz, wasn't it, on, on, on Reagan's watch, was actually really quite progressive, I guess, yeah. for, for, for the time and, and, and for his party. You know, I, I think there were certain individuals along the way that were really quite trailblazing and the other thing that struck me as as you were speaking there was um i've been reading um as i do quite regularly um michael mann's work um who, yes. who's very he's very accessible i mean for for us you know those of us who were not at all scientists you know mm. you need to try and uh, understand yeah. these really complex matters sometimes he's great for the kind of the layman's terms on the complex things but he talks a lot about um you know the same kind of um uh, he uses the term psyops, you know, but the the, the approach that yes. the tobacco industry took yeah. basically back in the day. So, you know, the, 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 the tobacco industry knew by the 1950s how, uh, you know, consequential, let's say, smoking yes. was. And yet right up to the late 60s, you know, their 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 kind of motto was doubt is our friend. You know, that was the kind of the strap line or whatever. And you see the same names, the same people yeah who were employed in the tobacco industry coming back later on and being employed in certain sectors where, you know, they're kind of paid to come out and say, oh, no, nothing to see here. Everything's fine. Move along. Or climate change will happen very, very slowly and we'll easily be able to get out ahead of it, which is you know clearly not the yeah. case now. Mm-hmm. So you have, as well as any sort of government efforts to move forward, when they do happen, even if they are intermittent and, and all the rest of it, but sometimes there have been impressive efforts at leaping forward and you get this pushback then from certain yeah. sectors and the minute you put doubt in there it's like you sort of cast a fog and that's when people start going oh well i'm not sure or oh, well maybe yeah. well maybe they're right or whatever and then that muddies the water and i think that's really slowed the progress hasn't it in a way that we could be 30 years further down the track now had we not been sort of given this this <coughs> this murky message yes. i would say since the, since the 80s really yeah and i, I I'm just piggybacking on that, um, if, to what extent in terms of fueling that doubt, and or, that's not quite, that's what I, was, I didn't mean that, if the word fueling quite, it's just, just going to come out. But in terms of, we think go back to the early 1970s and that period, mm-hmm. how damaging, or damaging is not quite the right word, but the sort of energy politics of the 1970s were particularly turbulent, just in terms of... Mm-hmm. Uh, oil, you know, the, the, the way in which the, the increase in, in oil prices, the global oil price fuels the inflation or the stagflation of the 1970s, pushes the US a little bit more into the sense of 
needs to be more self-sustaining in terms of oil production. Um, does that help, if that's the right word? Can that doubt be maintained and that we actually, you know, we need to prioritise the fossil fuel industry rather than, than, than this, uh, this perhaps intangible future problem, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. You know, I mean, you both raise some key points here. One, you know, the problem is that much of these, you know, uncertainty uh, and, uh, you know, exactly what Michael Mann, who's one of my heroes, <laughs> describes, uh, it's, I think it relates clearly to one of the key issues of climate change being used more often than not for political expediency rather than believing or not believing um, generally in the crisis. Uh, um, um, so, you know, um, we we have people that, and I'm sorry, I always go back to the former president, but, you know, he's representative of a sensitive group of people that have done considerable, considerable damage, not so much because they are true deniers, which probably is the aspect that irritates me most. <laughs> I would respect him probably more if he was a, a true believer in climate change denialism. But in identifying the issue as something that can get me vote, then I don't care about understanding it. Uh, certainly don't care about solving it. And what I want to I want to use the issue because I'm sure that it will get me votes, which is linked to what Alex was saying, you know, the fossil fuel industry and the economy. One of the false narratives that these people have been so successful in, in creating, generating is this idea that fighting climate change goes against the economy, that if we want to fight climate change, we need to sacrifice the economy. And it's a very successful narrative that has been peddled for decades now and has got many people converted that it's one at the expenses of the other, which is absolutely nonsense because actually as uh, President Obama and President Biden have demonstrated, the economy can benefit from Turn, you know, turning into a green uh, economy uh, and in a climate-friendly uh, economy. Um, it is fair to say, I think, that uh, the, the, the vast majority of climate deniers uh, belong to the GOP, but there are quite a few Democrats as well that are not as uh, supportive as we would like them to be. Because if we think, for example, at um, Senator Minkin, uh, you know, West Virginian Democrat, it's a coal-producing state. President Biden had to give in quite a lot in terms of negotiating his Inflation Reduction Act to make him happy. So to have the, the, this massive piece of legislation unthinkable during the Obama years to go through and make everybody um, happy. Uh, he had to concede quite a lot on this in order to, to get this through and make it the fossil fuel um, people happy. Yeah, just, just to quickly jump in there for anybody who's not is slightly confused by the title the Inflation Reduction Act, which didn't really have that much to do with inflation reduction uh, and was effectively, a, 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 did lots of things actually. It was a big, big piece of legislation, but was yeah. that was certainly, I think, the biggest effort at uh, incentivizing changing behaviours 
and corporate America on, on climate issues. Um, so yeah, it was, it, you know, and so, yeah, it was a breakthrough in that, in that context. But yeah, just to clarify that, it was, it, it, it doesn't sound like it's much to do with climate if you just look at the title. Uh, well, yeah. it's not got much to do with inflation. But uh, again, I mean, <laughs> that's sort of important for Manchin and others. That that's how you sell it as a as, as a different piece of legislation than, than what it than what it actually actually turns out to be. Yeah, um, and, and it so. was yeah, and it's a piece of legislation that is set up through incentives rather than a, a regulation and punishment. It's a all carrots no stick kind of approach, <laughs> given mm. the political reality in in DC. And I think, I mean, I think Obama could be credited with very much trying to implement the carrot approach as well, yeah. didn't he? You know, back in the day, I'm thinking of, you know, the, the clean power plan and that. I mean, obviously, all, things all unravels later, mm-hmm. but just in the way that he was, it was kind of incentivizing states and just being mindful of the psychology of trying to get everybody yes. on board. I think the wording of these things is, is actually really important as well. I mean, the fact that the Inflation Reduction Act um, doesn't mention the word climate, maybe that's better, you know, because, yes. people, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, Obamacare versus the Affordable Care Act or whatever. People get very head up about wording, even even though it is literally just a kind of a, a label. So I think I think he, he was quite good at the, the, the kind of the, the, the carriage approach. Um, I wonder if I was just thinking that the, one of the things that we were talking about before we started recording, you know, the kind of the 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 the, the layers and the entities that would take the crisis seriously. And, um, you know, we've we've talked about some previous administrations and how there have been a few surprises there along the way. Um, in terms of, of uh, if we think of it in, in a more contemporary manner, like. Obviously, the Biden administration is is making good efforts. Would would we kind of would we give some states, you know, a a, a few uh, ticks as well for making efforts? You know, some states are better than others, maybe. (laughs) Yes. Well, you know, I think, you know, climate um, Biden is uh, an Obama plus, if you will. (laughs) And he was able to do so much more um, than uh, than President Obama for for so many reasons, and unfortunately, because the, also the climate crisis has got so much worse. I think he has done a great job in uh, in putting uh, you know the climate crisis on the agenda to be serious about the climate crisis. You know, I think it was very significant that is. Uh, the very first day after inauguration, the first thing he did is to rejoin the climate agreement. It's not a very, the Paris climate agreement, it's not a very uh, big uh, message. And, and then appointing John Kerry, who was such a seasoned diplomat, uh, to the climate special envoy. And again, as we were mentioning before, the Inflation Reduction Act. These, um, all of these things sent a strong message to the international community and uh, at home. But it's true that in the U.S., uh, as you mentioned, states have got a lot of power. <laughs> so it cannot all come from the White House uh, alone only. So I will give a few positive takes uh, um, to a few states. I will think also cities have taken uh, on board the, you know, uh, I'm thinking about New York during the Bloomberg administration, and that was a strong Republican mayor uh, that invested so much money in, the, in, you know, in, in in building and converting and investing into green um, energy. 
it is, uh, you know, it takes a village. It cannot come from the White House only. Uh, um, it needs to be at all level in order to be solid, effective and credible at international level. I'm thinking about the international dimension and the US capacity to influence others. Um, a couple of points, and we'll just start with one. How, how important is it, in a sense, from, you know, you talked about US diplomacy and the power of example, I guess, is, is, and so how important is it in terms of persuading other countries? Uh, to reduce their carbon emissions, that the US does so. And is, do, 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 I mean, is there anybody else who could, you know, if the US drops the baton, is there any other country that can pick it up and lead on climate issues in that sense? Yeah, that's very good. I mean, you know, the, the US is one of the biggest polluters and one of the biggest economies. So the way America responds to climate change as a significant impact uh, on how it is perceived by the international uh, community. Um, it also because it's closely tied to American values and ideals. So, you know, you're on, the United States has long been a leader in promoting democracy, human rights, the rule of law globally. Now, climate change poses a threat to all these values and these ideas. So by exacerbating inequality, undermining democracy, destabilizing global security, and climate change does that, um, the whole, um, you know, the power of persuading and, and leading uh, the rest of the world towards effective climate solutions uh, is lost. And just bring you a small example. Brazil in 2009 passed major climate legislations because they responded to the Obama election. The expectation was that Obama would raise U.S. climate ambitions and will deliver on U.S. climate ambitions. Brazil um, realized that it needed to keep up with the U.S. because it was afraid that it might incur in trade penalties, not being in line with the international community, and so on and so forth. And that was a major input to pass uh, climate legislation. Unfortunately, we've already said that all Obama's climate ambitions did not happen. The U.S. has a huge, the point is that the U.S. has a huge um, power in leading the community. And these, the, you know, this shaky leadership, the 70s were good, then we went down, then Obama came, we're good again, um, then Trump arrived, then we went down again. It's a stop and start system that leaves the whole uh, community, international community uh, shaky, you know, exactly as Claude said at the very beginning, we could be further down in progress against climate change, but we're not because uh, um, there hasn't been a, a steady and unstable leadership. Um, what I will say is that the main beneficiaries, well, at least one of the main beneficiaries of these uh, CISO approach, um, uh, has certainly been China's image and China's soft powers. Now, I'm not sure if, you know, in answering your question, Alex, if China can lead the international community at the same level as the, the U.S. could. But especially during the Trump years, uh, you know, China has gone from being the bad guy of climate change to claiming the moral authority, um, thanks to the investment in green energy and a certainly a more positive contribution to international negotiations than the U.S. during those four years. 
there's, there's if you look at the the wording of that i mean you, you if, if you just took it at face value you think oh we're going to be okay you know this is really progressive this is far-reaching this is multi-level you know there's a hugely ambitious element to it um obviously you know the devil's in the the detail and the implementation but at least the will is there i think in in much of europe to, to move things forward so even whilst america is you know who knows what's going to happen in 2024 and china all the complexities that, that that go with that there are possibly other strands that can keep pushing things forward and also younger voters even within the us seem to be increasingly concerned with this and increasingly prioritizing it in a way that they weren't previously no i agree and, and there are some positive we need to look at the positives <laughs> we need to keep ourselves motivated and nurture somehow a hope Two points on this, however, Claude, uh, starting from the younger voters. You know, the reason why I quoted uh, the GOP potential candidate, um, Adam Sweeney, is 38 years old. And it's, uh, I found that very concerning that such a, a younger candidate will talk about uh, climate change uh, as a, a hoax. Uh, now, it was very vague then, and again, uh, my doubt is, again, he's using this for political expediency rather than looking at the, the real issue and, and its consequences. But it is concerning that a young man, 38 years old, that is supposed to, to represent a new generation of inclusion and diversity is talking of climate change as a hoax. The other thing, the other point, yes, it's true, the European Union tried to fill in the gap, uh, the void, you know, this constant seesaw that, that the U.S. is playing at. And I will say also UK and Australia, other develop, developed countries have um, have tried to, to fill in the gap. But this is not being consistent or as ambitious or effective as, the, uh, as needed. I think that, you know, the void created by the lack of U.S. leadership um, still had um, significant consequences. The U.K. and Australia now have fallen behind in their, uh, you know, payment and, and, and contributions, which that opens a, a huge Pandora box, because then we should also talk about climate responsibility, climate justice, climate compensation, and, and so on and so forth, and the responsibility of developed countries. Um, I welcome the European Union efforts. I welcome other developed countries' efforts. Uh, what I think is, is that we need a more consistent and stable uh, leadership. And you see, that's, you know, that's why, you know, I think Trump did some, Trump and his clan did so much damage because he pulled the plug at a moment where the momentum needed to keep going because the Paris Agreement had just been signed. As you said, business is coming on board not least because of the actual mm, mm, environmental uh, mm, tragedies happening around the globe. So that was the time to keep, uh, you know, the the momentum going. And Trump and his people pulled the plug on something that, you know, was a major achievement. And so the other nations, um, the European Union, UK and Australia, were left to fill the void. So... Mm, can meet the the emergency created by uh, by the U.S. So that and we could be further down, but we're not because um, the lack of stability. Yeah, I mean that's a uh, it's an you know, it's, it's an interesting well, it's just an important point about that lack of stability, and it's one of the, the fragilities of democracy. 
again, yeah. this isn't a champion alternative systems, but it's one of the shortcomings of, you know, politicians who want to get elected tend to think short term rather than necessarily in the, in the long term. Just on Ramaswamy, I'm not sure he believes anything he says. Um, uh, Trump, actually, I'm quite happy to give Trump the give Trump the benefit of the doubt, no, but in the sense of I think he probably does believe his own propaganda. So uh, I think his climate denialism is sincere, whereas Ramaswamy, well, just quickly on Ramaswamy, one of the things I found most remarkable about that exchange of the debate was the way that Ramaswamy said he could speak the truth because he was the one who hadn't been sort of bought and paid for, which was really turning sort of clichés about climate debate on its head in a sense of because uh, climate activists have often been frustrated by the power of the fossil fuel industry yeah. to sort of, you know, uh, and, and their sway over politicians. And Ramaswamy was now saying, actually, no, it's the green lobby who are the ones with the, the sort of cultural and political power, which was an interesting twist on the debate, if, if a pretty mendacious uh, mendacious one simultaneously. But I think you're right, it's very worrying that he sees himself as, as this, this voice of whatever sort of Republican populism yeah. uh, is these days. Um, I, I want to just, I, I, I want to come back to the, some of the issues you raised around global insecurity and climate, because I think they're really important issues. But just to be a bit more um, in the weeds for a moment, I mean, one of the debates in politics and political science that we never quite get our hand, head around to be sure about is you know, leadership leading and publics responding. But what we do see in the US much more than else, well, I've seen a pulse from everywhere, but certainly in the UK, is that the partisan divide over, over climate. And just looking at some recent Pew polling, which shows sort of 54% of Americans overall would say that climate is a problem, uh, a major threat to the country, actually, I think, was how the poll yeah. defined it. So it's a major threat to the US, not just to uh, countries which are more vulnerable to climate change immediately. And now you've got 78% of those who would describe themselves as Democrats or leaning Democrats saying, yes, it's a major threat, but only 23% of Republicans. Um, now, it, the problem is, what, as I said, what's unclear is whether that, those figures are because the leaders tell us uh, that it's a threat or not a threat, or whether the, the leaders are responding to it. But now I think we, you're at a point where it becomes very difficult for Republican leaders to come out and say that climate's a major threat because they've educated their voters for so long that it's not a major threat, which is is uh, it's pretty demoralising. I'm not sure where this conversation is going, just incredibly demoralising, I think. That, um, I really yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, that the, the, the key word you just mentioned, education, you know, that the, the GOP educated their voters uh, uh, that climate change is an hoax, but it goes beyond this and about the overall American system, uh, you know, equality, accessibility, access to education and uh, um uh, racial injustice, um, it is all tied together and all complicated uh, together. You know, most of the people who think that climate change is an hoax, I will say, are now intellectually curious <laughs> to, to go and explore behind what their um, their party uh, has told them. And... Uh, um, and yeah. they accept the, the indoctrination. Yeah, it's very, and I, I thought I can see it's going to call time on a series. So I just want to quickly get to, um, to, and to switch 
to a big question from, from that more specific one. You mentioned in terms of climate and, and climate change and the way in which it is disrupting international politics. And, and, and I guess in a sense, this is where we are talking about public diplomacy and, and US diplomacy is mm. persuading people that this is a problem. And I think one of the issues always seems to me is a little bit how, in, again, it's a little bit intangible to put your finger on exactly how this is happening. Uh, and an example I found particularly interesting is migration. You know, we've got millions of people now on the move, uh, yeah. more than I think. Yeah. At any point, and obviously the population is bigger, so it's more than any point in human history is a bit, perhaps a bit uh, yeah. a bland thing to say. But, you know, a lot, and some of that is clearly caused by climate change in the sense of, you know, it's disrupting yeah. domestic economies, it's disrupting people's capacity to, to, to live a decent life in, mm-hmm. in areas where they previously did live a, a, a decent, but, you know, could live. Uh, comfortably, at least physically. Is that a you know? Do, how how do I mean? Just thinking, maybe just a this is maybe a bit unfair on you, Mara, but just in the sense of you know, what are the arguments that can be made to persuade? How can the US lead? What 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 are those diplomatic arguments that it can actually to to to, persu- to be more persuasive in terms of its international leadership? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, to be fair, that Biden as made an effort to persuade healthy nations to contribute to um, to costs of um, of helping you know developing countries and all these global issues but you know i go back to my original point diplomacy works if it is backed up by credibility so if you ask climate credibility and climate image are um, are good uh, then people are more persuaded. But if we go through these ups and downs, according to who is in in the White House or um, who what priorities uh, are um, are on the table or not. And again, to be fair, you know, Clinton is a Democrat. Tried to do something about climate change, but then he was caught up in the post Cold War. Uh, mm, 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 mm how to organize a world order uh, debate. It was uh, very focused on digital, on the digital age, but used very much the digital tools to to promote democracy in former Soviet uh, uh, countries. Uh, And then climate change was set aside. 9-11 happened and well, the Bush administration, not the most enthusiastic environment supporter, but put priority on on the war against terrorism. Obama arrived, put the climate change on the agenda, did not succeed. Then we have Trump. These back and forth do not give credibility to, uh, to, to, to U.S. climate diplomacy and the international stage. How are you supposed to lead when people at home are not listening uh, to you? Again, Biden is sending a good message with this, uh, um, with Ira, with Inflation Reduction Act. However, you know, among the many concessions, he had to approve a drilling project in Alaska, which was opposed by the indigenous people. Uh, that doesn't certainly speak to climate justice and climate uh, equality. So, you know, you have two steps forward and one step backward. It's very difficult to convince the rest of the world that they are supposed to be the leader uh, and, and follow what you say when you, you know, you don't walk the talk. Having said that, I still think that um, diplomacy and and diplomatic work is still valuable. It shouldn't be the only tool to to fight climate change. Uh, 
but it's better to sit on the table and force countries to come to the table regularly, at least once a year, than nothing at all. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I'm just we're we're at time now, so we'll 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 gather up our, our thoughts. Thank you, Mara. I just wanted to maybe just throw in two two very swift questions to you yeah. to, to close off, if, if that's okay. One, I wondered, is there anyone in in, in particular, any kind of you know uh, climate diplomacy? I don't know if hero is the right word, but you know maybe somebody that you would kind of hold in high esteem or respect, or ever yeah. anyone who is anyone in particular. But, you know, I have to say, and to end on a positive, that my pantheon of climate heroes is crowded. <laughs> there are many people who are working tirelessly to, to fight climate change. But one person stands out, and that's Greta Thunberg. She is the one that for me has done, uh, stands out as uh, the one that has done most to show the world that even one voice can make a difference and no effort is wasted effort and uh, um, and she has made a difference and also her parents who were clever enough to give her the space and the support to to do what she believed was right to do and to keep on doing it because she's still doing it <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 absolutely i don't think you need to ask me about the villain <laughs> okay, let's not even let's not even say that. Let's not give him any more airtime. He doesn't need it. Okay, that that's that's wonderful. Thank you, Mara. And I guess we we ask all our guests the same closing question, just in terms of yeah. things, uh, sources you would recommend in relation to yeah. this. Just one or two that you particularly think are, are useful. Yeah, well, I very much agree with you, Claude, that Michael uh, Mann's work. Uh, is essential, especially the new climate war should be a mandatory reading for everybody because he explains that, you know, he's, as you mentioned, he's a scientist, but he has done so much to make science accessible to those of us who don't have a scientific background. And his work, especially on disinformation and exposing corporations and, and how they have delayed climate action and deflected the blame is, is very important. Again, as I mentioned earlier, I will read uh, anything that Rebecca Solnit is writing about climate change and support uh, her stance of not giving into climate despair. Uh, the LSE podcast on climate change is a very good podcast to understand the political uh, implication uh, on the international situation. And then I think that everybody should have on their bedside table anything written by Mary Oliver nature writer and uh, and poet fortunately we lost her a few years ago when we needed her most but anything that she has written uh reminds us that we're not we're one with this planet we're not separate and we have a moral responsibility to look after each other and the kindness empathy and compassion are our true powers Okay, well, I cannot think of a better note on which to end. So thank you so much, Dr. Mara Oliver, for talking to us. And we hope you'll come back when these publications are out next year. We'd love to chat thank to you again. Thank you so much thank for your you time. Thank you so much, much for much having appreciated. me. Much, much appreciated. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Marilyn. Thank you. Okay, guys. Uh, we'll see you next time. Bye.